Well, hello, and welcome to the 18th Tim Masso podcast. Today, we have a real star on hand, Jason Wilbur, industrial artist, entrepreneur, and creator of the Wilbur Watches brand. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Tim. Happy to be here. It's going to be a good time, but a lot of folks don't know you quite as well as, say, Terry Stern. That's I'm going to wager a bet they don't know you as well as the Stearns. So how do you make an introduction? Tell your story in your own words. Take me through your childhood, your education, and your internships to catch you to hear. All right. Well, you know, I mean, I've got, I've had, I've had a lot of different experiences in my multiple careers, um, but they've all been centered around creative endeavors. So, um, you know, I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I was creating things, making things, destroying things, figuring out how to put things back together, or not figuring out how to put things back together. Um, you know, and obviously, like. Um, like a lot of little kids, you know, like my whole entire infatuation with machines and with um, anything that I kind of believed was, uh, you know, I think obviously as adults, we have the same ideas that, you know, anything that kind of enhances the human experience, you know, it's like we've got this addiction as, as, as men and women to try to figure out how to like not just be limited to our own physical capabilities. And so anything that's motorcycles, anything that's cars, anything that's rocket ships, anything that kind of turns turns average man into superheroes, that's kind of the things I was always into. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I started off um, my, my career, uh, you know, over, over 20 years ago, I was in graphic design and branding. Um, that really came from my love for drawing and for um, painting and creating things. Um, and, you know, it, once I got into college and I was doing fine art and things like that, I started realizing, well, wait a minute, I might actually have to make a living here. So, you know, let's try to figure out some way to commercialize this a little bit. And getting into graphic design at the time was in the 90s when there was a little bit of a revolution in graphic design. It wasn't just about like, you know, um, creating clean imagery. It was more about making a statement and turning graphic design into artwork. And so, I was really inspired by people like David Carson and some of those people that were really kind of like bending the rules at the time. And, um, you know, after that, I spent, I spent a few years in advertising, graphic design, branding. It was kind of the web years when um, there was a web boom going on. Everybody needed a website or thought they needed a website. <laughs> and so, and, but, you know, it was also, I also kind of kept feeling like I was only kind of tapping into one aspect of, of really what I wanted to do creatively. And um, my ADD was kicking in and I said, you know what, I think I'm done with this. I wanna start doing more physical products. So it was really more about like, okay, let's do the next thing. And since I'd been addicted to cars and motorcycles and things like that, since I was a young kid and I kind of was able to shed a little bit of the, a little bit anyway, of the immaturity of the younger years, I said, you know, let's go back to school. I'd always heard about Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Um, it's world renowned for its car design program. And, um, and I thought, well, maybe I could actually like make it through college this time. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give this, I'll give this a shot. And it wasn't really about going and getting a career in car design because I knew I was too impatient for a normal corporate job in the end, but it was more about just like giving myself the time to create and also learn a lot about making a very difficult product. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was at Art Center, I had, um, you know, was doing car design and, and it was, it was awesome because we were also like immersed in product design and also thinking about human factors, thinking about, um, 
you know, like design thinking and how to create products, not just that are beautiful products, but also like why they resonate with people from a functional standpoint, why they resonate with people from an aesthetic standpoint and how to create emotional value. So like my art center years were really, really, I want to say like very formative considering the fact that they happened when I was like over 25. Um, but, you know, I, I, I had an internship and a scholarship from Porsche, which I thought was really awesome. And um, at the time, Porsche actually had a studio out here in California um, where it was kind of the beginning days of um, Porsche design. And so we were doing everything from, you know, golf clubs to shoes to watches to everything else. And, and at the same time, we we're also doing cars. And so the merging of the ideas that came from R&D for creating future cars also was trickling into all of these products. And you could definitely see a difference between that kind of methodology and a lot of methodology that people use to create everyday products at the time. So that was very inspiring for me. And so when I moved on um, after my internship and eventually graduated from Art Center, um, I got a job at, uh, at Honda. Um, my wife, she, she was also, I met her at Art Center. She's, she's a car designer as well. She created the new, the new NSX. And so both of us, yeah. So, so both of us, both of us said, well, what are we going to do? Let's stay in Southern California. Um, and, and so we got, we both took jobs with Honda. I, I, I took a job with Honda. She took a job with, with Acura, um, obviously under the same roof. So she had to deal with me more than she probably wanted to, but it was awesome. And, you know, I, but again, it was, for me, it was more about pushing the limits. It was all about, you know, when you go to, when you go into car design, you go into car design because you had posters of Lambos on your wall, not because you had posters of minivans on your wall. So you do that for a while, you'll, you'll do some production cars and all of that. And it's great because you do learn the processes of creating a real product that has to be commercialized, that has to be safe, that has to get on the road. And it has to kind of make a profit. Um, but I was always, again, kind of keep, keep kept on, I, everything that was pulling on me was trying to bring me back to creating what's next, what's new. Um, I was never happy with, you know, I didn't create cars because I was happy with cars. I was creating cars because I wasn't happy with them. I was creating them because I wanted to, you know, see what could be done, what could, what, le what, what next level could be pushed. And so I started, um, you know, I started working in advanced design at Honda, which was really more about um, creating future concepts. This was really more about thinking 20 years out, putting people in drones. It was about um, creating vehicles that had never been thought of before. It was, it was thinking about alternative energy. It was thinking about all those kinds of things. And so we would create motorcycles around those concepts, cars around those concepts, marine products around those concepts. We'd even, you know, create um, different kind of like digital tools and systems that would allow us to help designers internally share ideas and things like that. So it was really more of a skunk works type of um, thing. And I, and I was head of that for several years, um, but my impatience as usual was, was getting the best of me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I took a lot of, um, I took a lot of time to create things on my own. I was creating guitars um, reimagining every type of product, you know, in, in, in the, in the, in the early years of school, I was doing a lot of the watch things and I was doing a lot of, um, mechanical random devices. Like I remember, um, being really inspired when I was seeing, um, products from like Roland Iden, you know, who made, who made the, the house of eight stuff, who would make like a belt buckle that had like 800 parts. And it was just turned a belt buckle 
something that just kept your pants on into something that was like a true piece of art that you could sit and talk about for hours. And those types of things and that kind of like spirit of taking an everyday product and turning it into a piece of artwork, rethinking it in a way and taking certain risks in that way, that was what I decided was going to be all about my future. And the watch thing really, and I, I've said this before, but it really became interesting, the most interesting to me once watches became kind of useless as a tool. Not that they're useless, but what I mean by that is when its primary function was not to tell time, when, when, when you can tell time on your phone, when you can tell time anywhere else, and when it became more about trying to push the limits from an emotional standpoint and sculptural standpoint, and time telling really became just kind of like a standard feature. Um, so after, after I um, ran uh, Honda Advanced Design for a while and made a bunch of crazy products and cool cars and had a great time, met a bunch of cool people, um, I had created a watch that eventually became uh, the Devon Tread One, um, which was, was initially supposed to be the first Wilbur watch, but I created that in 2008, 2009. And you remember that was when the last time the world fell apart and everybody's 401k was worth a dollar and their house was worth $2. And getting investment for projects like that was just definitely last on everybody's list. So I, I, but I, what was great was I, I met Mr. Devin, he was willing to back the project and, and it was a way for me to take something that was a very challenging and crazy project and, and bring it to life. And that really started my kind of um, immersion into um, the watch world and, and really meeting the amazing people in the industry and connecting with suppliers and connecting with other like-minded people that really love crazy things. Um, and I, you know, that was a great experience. You know, a lot of people love it. A lot of people hate it, but to me, that's wonderful. I'd rather have people, you know, I'd rather have people love or hate something than just to be vanilla and just like it. So it was great. And it, it created a lot of cool relationships. So, you know, eventually after a couple, um, other projects after Honda, I started a scooter company, um, got some funding for that and eventually exited that project and, and really said, look, like this is the time to, 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 to turn this thing into something that I can um, focus 100% of my time on. And so the Wilbur brand was born. And, um, you know, I, I, there were a bunch of times during, during, during my years where I was doing one-off concepts and uh, watches that I, that I was imagining I would use for the future. And a, a, lot of it, a lot of it was really just about my own, almost like medicating myself escaping the realities of the design world where you're making things for other people. It was more about just creating my things from my dreams and, and, and allowing myself to just kind of immerse myself in that. And so it was a therapy for me. And then other times I was doing one-off pieces for, um, you know, individuals around the world, crazy pieces. Um, sometimes we would, you know, spend the budget of an entire brand building project on one watch and build one and that was it you know and so we did a bunch of things like that but eventually i said look i really want to share these creations with the world and and that's what gave gave birth to the wilbur brand you know it's amazing because you hit so many of the topics i wanted to discuss uh i was going to ask you because i wanted to draw this back to like the audience's experience like Hey, did you did you meet Michelle Christensen who designed the NSX while you were at Honda? <laughs> Sorry, man. I told you I've been I've been in a hole for so long. Oh, I even forgot I was gonna wear my my Paps hat for you guys since you guys are yeah, I gotta get the East Coast love going. Yeah. So, you know, the other great thing is that you mentioned uh the, the art center, which for our, our viewing audience, that's like 
these guys are like the Harvest, Harvard Business School MBAs of design. Um, so just so you know, there's a whole school, they call it California design in like car design over the last 25 years. And the art center has been right at the center of that. So that's what we're talking about there. Uh, the Devon Tread, you, you finally dipped your toe into the world of actually making watches. Well, let me ask you, how did that partnership with Scott Devon come about? And what did you learn about manufacturing in the watch industry from that experience? Well, I mean, you know, I had already had a bunch of years under my belt in terms of dealing with making cars and making other products. So I understood the realities of manufacturing and designing things. A lot of times you create something that's an amazing idea, but manufacturing it. Oh, there we go. Yes, team, team hats. I love it. There you go. <laughs> I've worn this one in a while. I love it. Um, and, and, you know, so, so what, ha what happened was that, you know, I, what I like to do when I'm creating a product like that is to not be um, hindered by the realities of manufacturing and design that are obvious to today's measure. Meaning that a lot of times when you create future products, the first thing that engineers and everybody will tell you is it's impossible to make, right? Or that that's not the way we make watches. We don't do it like that. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, I knew that if I was gonna get backing for a project like this, I was gonna need somebody that could understand that I was gonna fight to make this thing 100% what the vision was. And we were gonna all have to live with the consequences, meaning that we were gonna go through the process and we were gonna get a team of people that would say yes and not a team of people that would say no and that would do everything to try to make this thing what it was going to be. And, you know, a lot of times when you're creating a product, you start with other things. You start with a price point. You start with a certain market target market group. You say, I want to make a product that's within this price range. I want to, and then I want to, and it needs to be, have these certain things. Well, what I did was start with an idea. And I said, look, we're going to build this idea, whatever it is, it is. And then if we're going to take it to market, it's going to cost what it's going to cost because we just don't know. And, you know, the first thing I did was I started shopping it around with what, you know, I, first thing I did was I created the concept. I made, I used things I learned in the industry. I 3D printed the, the thing. I, I came up with multiple different ways to even though, you know, you've seen it, it looks chunky. It's crazy, but I wanted it to be ergonomic. So I wanted it to fit well, even though it was big, I wanted it to feel good on your wrist and everything. So I did multiple versions, 3D printed them, 3D printed them out of titanium, plastic, all different things. Um, and then, and then I figured out how to make it work. So the idea was to come up with the idea first, then figure out how to make it work versus saying, what do we have that's out there that I can put together in such a way that will make it kind of close to this, which was interesting because when we first started that project and I was showing it to people in Switzerland and I was going to traditional watchmakers, they said, it's impossible. Some of them said, well, it might be possible, but you might have to hire somebody to stand next to you to wind it every 15 minutes because the energy that's going to be required to spin the belts and do all those kinds of things is going to be is going to be so immense that you're not going to be able to have an onboard spring that's going to operate this watch for more than an hour so i said well let's stop thinking about it like a watch let's start thinking about it like an like a device like an object that needs to function a certain way and then work backwards from there so that's when i started saying well, let's start talking to some micro mechanics micro mechanical engineers Let's talk to some electronics engineers, um, microelectronics. Let's talk to some aerospace guys. And I talked to some people that basically were like, well, we have no idea about how to make a watch. And I said, good, 
that's, that's the best thing because now you're not going to tell me how it's supposed to be done. Now you're going to say, let's figure out how to make this work. And that's why that thing ended up with a crazy recharging system. It ended up with optical sensors. It ended up with microprocessors that ran everything. And, 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 and in the end, it was awesome because if you really had sat down with too many people that were familiar with how you're supposed to make a watch, you wouldn't have ended up with a product like that. So in the end, I said, just imagine that you just need to make these belts go around in, at a certain amount of time over a certain period of time and that it has to do it and that's and then we'll strap it to your wrist afterwards and we'll call it a watch and that was really kind of the thing but you know meeting scott devon was really more through the automotive world which is what happens with me all the time now is is you know when i was at when i was when i was i was working on that project when i was at honda and searching for investors and a couple of the people that I knew in the industry that were building concept cars for us and building, you know, crazy um, prototypes and things, they had introduced me to Scott Devin and said, hey, Scott's into doing some really fun things. Like we'd love to show the project to him. And I met Scott at the time when he was building um, a car project and some other projects. And so, you know, um, the project really resonated with him and, and, and that's how we got connected. So it's funny, my, my, my auto world thing is very, very much a part of, of, of my brand now, as well as just everything I've been doing with the watch world, you know, since day one. It's funny you say that because back at home, all my friends know me as Tim, the car guy, and I'm just in this great position where I work in watches and I used to support my car habits so I can totally relate. Yeah, 100%. Now, um, in terms of um, entering the watch industry in your own right, clearly Scott Devon was a figure there. Um, you know, we got that quote from Switzerland said, if you're going to do this Devon tread mechanically, it's going to cost $400,000 and have a 40 minute power reserve. So you did it electronically in California instead. Are there any people, contrarians, even traditionalists who influenced you as you entered the industry, people who are already watch guys who helped to guide kind of your vision of what Wilbur could be? You know, I think um, I, there was, you know, it started with, I want to say it started with Urwerk. I want to say it started with, you know, um, um, you know, uh, you know, it started with uh, Max. It started with MBNF. It started with Richard Meal. You know, I met Richard Meal one time and, and he gave me some, 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 some advice and some tips that I thought were really valuable. And, you know, I saw those guys breaking rules. I also saw how much, you know, how much backlash you can get and prepare myself for that. Um, but there were a lot of people in the industry that were super supportive because they wanted to see changes too. They wanted to see something new. They wanted to see new displays of time. They wanted to see the artful aspect of it. So, you know, I was definitely inspired by, yeah, definitely inspired by MBNF, by Urwerk in the early days. You know, there were those guys like Cabistan and, and some, and, you know, and, and, and yeah, and some of those, some of those, and, and, and Christophe Claret and some of these other guys that were kind of doing some things in the shadows a little bit and being real true artists, right? Where they didn't care about commercializing. They didn't care about, you know, trying to make a global brand name. Um, they were just making crazy things and experimenting. And I saw that it was there and I saw that the, that the, that the seeds for it were there. And I also saw that it was necessary for the industry to move forward. And there was a reason why some of these things were naturally floating to the surface. And, you know, even to this day, those brands are criticized in those brands. But I think that, so, so that, that like really those guys um, really took the weight of the industry on their shoulders, frankly, 
and and help to kind of move keep watches alive and keep the industry alive for a long period of time um especially during you know the 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 times during you know obviously we talk about like the whole quartz crisis and all those kinds of things but you know it's there's all people still making so much traditional stuff and don't get me wrong a lot of times people are like oh you make crazy stuff you must love crazy things only and i'm like you know i i like i love like a beautiful i love a good clean Vajeron. I love a, like a, some a really classic watch. Um, personally, I love those things, but it's just not what's in my dreams. So I have to make what's in my dreams, you know? Uh, so let me ask you a question then, because every time I speak to someone or group who've started a new watch brand, um, it's just a Herculean challenge to get production started. Tell me about some of the production hoops you had to jump through, suppliers you had to source to actually start making Wilbur watches. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely the biggest challenge. I think it's what, it's what, it, what's, it's what makes, you know, when a lot of people wonder, well, like, well, why do people make so much of the same type of product? I'm like, well, because manufacturing is hard. And when you've already made something a certain way for a hundred years, it's easy to do that again, or it's easier. Um, you know, it's hard to make a watch that's like another watch. It's even harder to make a watch that's not like another watch, and 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 so what you have to do is you have to start tapping into, um, you have to start tapping into manufacturing sources that you know you have to look at the watch manufacturing sources and the people that are willing to take challenges, and you really have to talk to them from the very beginning about the real challenges you're trying to, um, the real the real challenges of your project. Um, but at the same time, you have to also diversify when it comes down to manufacturing. Um, you have to start looking into people that are making medical devices. You have to start looking into people that are making aerospace parts. You have to look into people that are making other things that are small, that are, that, that, so you have to, instead of being about looking for watch manufacturers, you have to look for manufacturers that make the highest quality product you can possibly make and that understand your vision at the same time. So you start to really narrow the field very quickly. And you know, one of the one of the reasons why I started with what I call a daily driver watch using an off-the-shelf movement, part of it was because I thought it'd be fun and it might actually like it might poke at the purists a little bit if I do something like that. But you know, using an off-the-shelf movement for your first product definitely removes some of the craziness in terms of um, the uh, you know the 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 uh, manufacturing aspect of this, because um, you're talking about limited time, you're talking about limiting limited budgets, things like that. But you know, obviously, being in the industry for being, you know, after coming out with the with the Devon watch and being involved in the industry for ten years, also being involved in automotive and product design, I was very connected to a lot of the suppliers and also understood, you know, who was going to make the best best things. So I didn't start from scratch, really, when I started the brand, which I think helped a lot. Um, yeah. Now, it's definitely an interesting way to look at it, because a lot of folks would say, well, I have my reservations about a new brand, but you overcome some of that inhibition by using proven movements that could be serviced forever. Yeah. Uh, so now beyond that, though, you're a little bit different than the average watch designer, because when Gerald Genta drew a Nautilus or he drew a Royal Oak, he would give that to someone who would then effectively draw blueprints, render the case, build it on an industrial scale. You do the sketches, the concept, the original art, but you probably also do some of the 3D Studio Max type stuff, like the computer assisted design. Uh, talk about how far you take the process before you hand it off to manufacturing. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, part of it is just I'm a con control freak. I, I, I keep saying that I'm not, but I'm just starting to realize that I think I am. <laughs> and, 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 but also, you know, I realized in my early days of design that a lot of times the reason why you lose emotional value in a product is the translation process, meaning that you're sketching an idea. So first of all, you've got an idea in your mind, then you sketch it. And no matter how amazingly creative you are, you're going to lose something in translation. It might be something small. You might not find out what it is till later. But when you sketch something from your brain to, your, to, to the sketch, you're losing a little bit, right? It's kind of like recording a tape or a record over and over and over. There's degradation. There's degradation in ideas every day where you have a big idea. And then as you go through the process and hand it off to somebody else to help with some of it, you lose some of the idea. And granted, a lot of times you can start with a crazy idea and then the reality of it is actually better because you've worked with people that can help you refine it. But what happens with me is that from day one, I've always built my own things in 3D. I build it in CAD, I build it in the computer. And a lot of the reason for that was because I would build this, I would draw the sketches and come up with these ideas. But then I really, really, when you would sit down with a team, you started realizing that number one, it takes a lot longer because now you're communicating that idea. But number two, like you, you can't create, you really, it's very, very difficult to get the proportions of every single surface, every single line, um, and, and down to literally, you know, tenths or hundreds of a millimeter when you're going from a sketch to building it in the computer. So for me, I said, well, let's skip that process and I'll build it myself. And honestly, I actually really enjoy that process because obviously over the years, I've learned how to make something, not just how to... I, ideate. And so um, I, I also engineer a lot of a lot of the products. So I sketch out the ideas. I and then I and then I build them in the computer. And then um, and then I drink too many beers and toil over it for a couple of days. And then I think about why something's not working and then I come back to it. So to me it's more of a it's a merging of an engineering process and an artistic sculptural process. And that's something that's a little bit hard to do if you're going to just hand off an idea to someone else. So, you know, this way I want my blood and sweat and tears and everything come through in the product and, and, and for me to get further along in it with my hands on it from the beginning really kind of helps with that. I think it helps keep the emotion in the product. Um, so these watches, it's, it's, I, I go all the way through um, pretty much the initial engineering process. I, I, I build it in the computer and then I, and then, um, you know, and then, I, and then at that point, once I'm happy with it and I've done some 3D prints and I've, um, and I like to do the videos, I like to do um, animations to make sure that I understand what it looks like when it comes alive, right? Like one thing that used to drive me crazy in car design all the time is that we would make these models of cars, right? And then you would see them in the courtyard sitting still and everybody would look at it sitting still. And I thought, you know, the first time we're ever gonna see this thing moving is once there's a prototype, like we've made a decision of what we're gonna make. And it's like, it's like going on a date with somebody that the entire time you've, you've known them, they were sleeping. And then finally you wake them up and it's like, okay, this is their personality. So I like to create in 3D and then do 3D renderings um, of multiple views. I want the watch to come alive from every single aspect, not just the front, right? So it's like, I want you to be able to find cool things in it, turn it over. The only way to really do that is to live with it and build it in 3D 
and do this over a period of days where you're really immersed in it and you're spinning it around, making animations, looking at what, what it feels like and looks like once it comes alive and it starts actually ticking. Um, so for me, it's really important to do that. And obviously as the brand is growing, it, that's a major, that's a major, that takes up a lot of my time, but it's actually the most important thing to me. It's what's going to happen as we move forward is I'm going to be the one designing everything and I'm going to build it in the computer and I'm going to build it in 3d um, and, and, and do all at least the pre-engineering. And then, and then at that point, that's when I hand it off to, to engineers. But the cool part is, is that the engineers that I work with, they know that I, that I understand manufacturing. And so when they come back to me with issues, um, you know, I, I never just say, well, just figure it out. You know, we, I like to be involved in the process of working through challenges instead of just saying, well, these other watch guys, they'll do, they'll, they'll, they'll mount a crystal like this, or, or they'll, you know, uh, in order to make like the crown, you know, water resistant, you know, th this is what those guys would do. I say, well, okay, that if that changed the design too much and pulls too much from the emotion that I was looking for, that's when I, I, I'm, 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 I'm very much involved in trying to challenge myself and the engineers to come up with new ideas to solve those problems. Um, and then, and then obviously I, I'm over, I oversee all the, all the manufacturing of all, all of all the product. And I still think that, um, you know, it's, I, I definitely know where, where my, where my limitations are, you know, and, and, but so far that works. Oh, it's, it's, it's impressive because I know a lot of folks think of, you know, watch brands that are manufacturers that are making their movements and they think, well, that's the ultimate, but I've spoken to watch brands that make their movements. And I asked them, well, why don't you make cases? And they said, if we had to make cases, we'd be bankrupt. So yeah. making a case is actually incredibly complex. Um, so you take a layer of the process that, for example, Max Booster at MBNF and Richard Meal would have to outsource to a designer, and you make that your responsibility, the design. Yeah. You've got a low-volume manufacturing partner, I'm sure, who's building the watches. Uh, could you tell our friends in cyberspace a little bit more about how the watches are made? Because that's the other half of the story people really love to hear. Yeah, well, I mean, I use I use suppliers that are, you know, obviously depends on the project, but with the launch edition watch, my, my first watch for, for, for the Wilbur brand, um, a lot of it is, 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 um, you know, I use suppliers from around the world, a lot, lot, some of, some of them in Asia, some of them in Germany, some of them, um, you know, are here. Um, and, and it really comes down to who makes the best stuff. And, but my most important, thing for me in terms of making the watch is that I want to assemble and finish the watches here in the US. Obviously, you know, I have, there's a ton of projects in the pipeline that are going to be watches where they're full on custom movements and things like that, where a lot of the plans for that are to manufacture that here in the US. And, um, but obviously every single project's different. So I'm not I don't, I don't really stick to like a supplier and then have the suppliers in my manufacturing processes determine what my projects and what my products are going to be in the future and just kind of say, well, these are the manufacturers we use and these are the movements we use. And so therefore, like, we'll just make more of that stuff. But with the launch edition, um, you know, to actually go back to your original question, you know, I, we make the parts everywhere. We've obviously, I use a Japanese Seiko movement in the, in the launch edition, which is really funny and very polarizing because a lot of people are like, oh, not Swiss. And I'm like, yeah, but it works. And it, you can, it's a, it's like putting a V8 crate engine in a hot rod. You could drive that thing for 10,000 miles and never have a problem. And 
you know, my connection with the Japanese from Honda, that was, there was, that was kind of there too. So I, I you know, I, the, 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 the most important thing is that for my man, my manufacturing process is that engineering and tooling and all those kinds of things that happens here. Um, all of the parts are made around the world. And then, you know, where, where the people make them the best, it's literally, that's how I decide. I say like, that's the person that makes the best crystal. So that's, what's going to happen. Um, that's the person that's great at doing um, hands. So that, that's where it's going to happen. Um, and then it all comes together here. And we, you know, I've got um, a, a partner up in the desert that does obviously aerospace engineering. And we've kind of turned part of that um, that that uh, facility into a into a watch watch factory essentially, and and they and they assemble and finish watches there, and it's awesome because we use like quality control um, uh, methods that they use in aerospace. And in, in the beginning, when they were going through the list of all the different things, I said, well, I don't know, that's maybe a little bit even too much. And even for me, that's a perfectionist. I was like, wow, okay, that's the type of level of quality control that that they use in aerospace. I'm like, well, let's use that, let's do that, and it's awesome because it. In the end, what happens is that you, you, you can you can be sure that everything that leaves and gets into the hands of the customer is going to be amazing, and to me, that's the goal. It's it's not so much about like where is it is it made in Frank's barn, and if it's made in Frank's barn, then that's what makes it valuable or makes it legitimate. And you know, I I have to say, I know a lot of people might get mad at me for this, but I know that the Swiss industry for years has been doing a great, great job of basically making it, telling everybody that unless something's made in Switzerland, it's garbage. And the truth is that it's, that's not the case. Um, there's a lot of am amazing craftspeople out there, amazing suppliers out there that make amazing things. Some of them have never even attempted to make a, a watch part before, and then they do, and it's probably some of their best work. So my whole thing is all about like thinking more on a, um, from a big picture standpoint of, of what's the end product going to be? And is it going to be the best possible end product and the, and really kind of execute my vision the best. And if that means that somebody is making parts up on the moon for me with a chisel and a bar of soap, and that's the way that the product comes out the best, then that's the way it's going to be. Now um, I got a question for you. If, if I might interrupt just for a sec, yeah. it sounds like you're uncompromising on quality but you're willing to go 50-50 love-hate on design. Tell me a little bit about how love-hate factors kind of motivate your design. Because I haven't met anyone who's indifferent about the Wilbur watch. They either love it or they hate it. Yeah. Do you consider that success? Um, I do. I do because, because the thing is, is that like this was never supposed to be 100% um, a commercial enterprise, meaning that this is about taking risks and trying certain things. This is about trying out new things, putting them out there. And it, again, it comes from my dreams. And, and, and it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that, I don't, um, that I'm not listening to customers. It doesn't mean that I'm not listening to uh, advice and real, real feedback and that that won't play an integral part of the products that I do in the future. I love getting feedback and I love, but the feedback has to be real and based on what the vision is not based on what the rest of the industry is doing and how I could be more like them. Um, so, so, I mean, for me, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but like when I was at Honda and when I was in my previous careers, I was designing things for other people and I loved doing that, but I was designing for the consumer and that's great, but 
at the same time, like I wanted to do something that was frankly for me and my friends, and my fans and people that think the way that, uh, that, that, that are willing to take a chance on kind of like exploring with new ideas. And it's artwork to me, it's, it's art, which, 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 you know, the reason why art isn't commercial, good art isn't commercialized is because the best art on, on earth is the stuff that's both loved and hated. And, you know, I, and obviously when I think about this from a business perspective, I, I know that I'm not trying, I'm not trying to sell, you know, 500,000 watches, you know, a year. Like, I, I know that there's the people that love my watch and write to me and say, wow, I got this thing and it's amazing. I love the box it comes in. The experience is awesome. Um, you know, that's who I'm making it for really. So it's, it, yeah, I look at it as a success, success from that end. It also means that I also believe that when when you've got something worth talking about, when people talk about something, it means that it's pushing the right buttons. I'm not saying that um, I make my products to irritate people. That's I mean I'd prefer people love it, but I just know that that the, the history has shown that the best ideas are always the ones that are the most polarizing, and and if it can influence other people to try some things and do some take some risks and do some cool things, then that's awesome too. It's people always, it's funny because people will think, you know, like, oh, it, it means that I think that my design is the best on earth or that I think that my design is somehow um, like the answer. And the truth is that I don't, I think it's just part of the process. Like I look at my, my watches and I look at some of my designs and after a couple of years, I'll look at something and be like, I don't know about that thing, you know, like let's, I gotta, I'm happy we moved on from that one or something like that. But that's, to me, I feel like I'm giving people a piece of an idea, an idea, a piece of a, of a, of a process in a way that it's nothing's complete. It's, 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 it's a, it's a part of a vision and it's, it's a snapshot in time of what, 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 what I was thinking and, and, and what I felt like creating at the time. And, and, and is it perfect? No, but is it awesome? Yeah. It's interesting because I think the watches that are most provocative tend to be the ones we remember. We remember the Royal Oak Offshore, which, you know, a, a younger generation loved and Gerald Gent, a designer of the Royal Oak, he hated that. Right. We, we remember the Devon Tread. I mean, just today, I had one on my wrist for election day. I went into a polling place and I'm not sure what was more polarizing, the election or the watch. Everyone <laughs> had an opinion. Everyone. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely get that sense, like something with the Dodge Viper or, you know, a motorcycle like the Ducati Monster, you know, you do it because it's cool and then you let the cards fall as they may. Right. And I think it's partially about like being honest and being, um, it's, it's about having integrity enough to just say like, look, I'm, it's, it doesn't have to be perfect idea, but it needs to be perfectly executed and it doesn't need to be. Um, it doesn't need to be, um, you know, like approved by all. Um, it's, it's not, I, I'm not making my product for everybody. I'm making, I'm making them because I feel like it. And if people love it, then that makes it even that much better. And, you know, another thing is that for me, it's, it's about the watch business, this, and, and what I'm doing here, art, creating things. It's, it's really more about building relationships and having conversations. I love having the conversations. I love having the conversation with the people that don't like it too. I, I like, I love the conversations. I love because it's about creation. It's about ideas. If you don't have the conversations, ideas fall apart and creation dies. So you have to have those conversations. It's part of the fun. We're not saving lives here. Like we're, we're making toys and it's, 
it's Santa's workshop and it's it's you know it's 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 the Tony Stark kind of like you know mad scientist garage and that's what it's all about if you lose that and start really trying to create products that you think everybody are, is going to like that's actually frankly the most dishonest thing i think you can do i think like you have to make what you love and if there's supporters that's great if there's people that don't like it maybe take that into consideration maybe there's some changes you can make to make it so that people will love it and and move on from there you know um but it's i, I always say this like when you look at artwork on the wall and you have no emotional reaction to it, but you know you're gonna buy it because somebody told you the inks were made in Switzerland and it took them 30 hours to paint just the gesso on the canvas. And then multiple craftsmen spent three years painting the rest of this painting. And the wood came out of the barn in Switzerland that the painting was painted on. I start thinking if that's the way that you need to sell the artwork, then what's the content? Where's the value in the content? And 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 this is no, uh, I used the, that as an example because you hear people all the time at, at galleries say, how long do you think it took that person to paint that painting? Or how long, and that usually is coming from somebody that doesn't love it. They're trying to justify the value in their mind somehow. And so to me, it's I've seen it. I've heard the conversations. I, I've, I've, I've done enough things like this. and. I feel like um, the only thing that I can really offer is, um, is, is genuine honesty in terms of saying, this is my idea. I'm willing to put it out there knowing that it's, I'm pushing the limits and even I'm uncomfortable with some of my ideas. And, and I always feel like if I'm not at least a little uncomfortable with some part of it, that, that maybe I'm not pushing, pushing it enough. Um, obviously there's things I'm not willing to compromise on like quality or like with my business, it's about customer service. It's about like making sure that I, I check in with my customers all the time and that they're happy with the product and that, you know, that, 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 um, I'm here for them if they want to ask questions and that I'm able to have a direct connection with, with them. Because to me, again, it goes back to being an artist. Like I want to be connected to the people that love it and, and build those relationships. So those are things, ergonomics, quality, um, you know, finishing, things like that. Those things have to be perfect. But when it comes down to the ideas, I think it's great when it's kind of comes out almost a little bit where I'm a little bit uncomfortable with it too. Yeah, I would definitely argue that dissonance makes a watch more memorable. And when something is just too easy to like, like everyone loves Louis Ulysse Chopard, the LUC watches, they're very easy on the eye. But you ask someone who says, I like it, you know, do you love it? Or are you going to buy it? And they're like, no. <laughs> so maybe it's not good to be too easily lovable. Yeah. Well, let me tell you this. So for example, like I, I'm, a, I'm a professional designer. I know how to design things based on taking customer understanding of a customer group, a target market, what they tend to like and what they tend to, what, what they'll really use. You know, when I was at Honda, I'd sit through multiple hours of focus groups and listen to people talk about products and things. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, and, and, and exactly. And that's not for me when it comes down to this, because this is still about pushing the limits. That's where this is contained. This is, this is all about taking those risks. And, and that's the story. Somebody's buying they're not buying a, a, a watch that everybody likes. And if that's what they think they're going to buy, then that's not this. Um, they're buying something that's a time that's, that's representative of a time 
and it's representative of an attitude and it's representative of a creation that happened to occur at this time in history. And that's what that is. And it's relevant to the things that are going on around us at the time. And that's all it is. And, you know, I, again, obviously you can tell, I can talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Oh, no, I appreciate it. You know, but it's, but, but, but that's the thing is that, is that if I wanted to make a product that was, that was loved by everybody, I can, I could, I could get closer to that, of course, by saying, let's make a, let's make a watch that everybody loves, right? It, first of all, if you start that way, it's not going to end up that way. Nobody, it doesn't happen, right? Um, number one, number two, again, I think it's, it's for, for me, it's in, it, it's disingenuous. It's, uh, it's now it's a commercial project. It's a commercial thing. It's let's make a product so that it sells. Let's make a product so that every, as many people on earth buy it. I'm making this to make a statement that my brand's about making a statement and, and that's all it is. And a lot of people criticize, they're like, oh, you're saying that if people don't love it, then they're not, you know, cool. And I'm like, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, this is, uh, this, this is what it is. And you either get it or you don't. And it's, we don't have to take it so seriously, you know? No, no, but I totally relate to it. It's there's a Porsche tuner called Rao Velt that makes very extreme modifications at the highest level of quality and attention to detail. And no one comes away from these cars indifferent. And I think that's kind of where you are with your design on this. Yeah, and I mean, and, and I'm gonna keep doing it, you know, and it's hard, don't get me wrong. It's hard when you get the amount of hate that I get. Like I get a lot of hate, especially considering like, uh, no one should be hating watches. I'm just going to opine there. Nobody should be hating. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the funny thing to me. I'm just like, don't let's, let's not forget, like, uh, I'm not saving lives over here. Like this is, these are toys. It's, it's when you're, when you're making something, um, but you know, you put yourself out there and, and a lot of people, you know, if people are cr- criticizing it, it, it does take a whole a toll on you. Of course, like, you know, last year was brutal, um, you know, in terms of, uh, what happened with the pandemic, you know, yes. um, I had to shift gears in terms of the way that I was not only having to get through the manufacturing process, which was very, very difficult with everything shut down globally, but also in terms of, you know, a lot of relationships that I had hearing about friends, people with stores that were struggling, people that were distributors that were struggling, um, people that were having a hard time, people that were really committed to, um, you know, selling my watch at their store or, or putting it or distributing my watch somewhere. And them saying like, look, man, I, we really have to put this on hold where we're struggling over here and things. And for me to have to say, okay, well, you know what, I'm gonna have to shift this. I'm gonna have to start trying to sell it online. You know, um, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to try some new things. So not only are you trying new things from a design standpoint and a manufacturing standpoint and a manufacturing uh, situation that's challenging, but now you're also saying, well, now I have to really also try to innovate from a business standpoint and think about how to get this out in front of the right customers. And when you put your stuff out there and you put it out there online, man, you start to like feel for, for, uh, for like, for like when you watch those move shows about like Britney Spears and all those people <laughs> online, you know, you start saying like, wow, okay. You know, I tell people, you know, I, I always, I always, I always act hard about it. And I'm like, I don't care what anybody thinks. Like I'm making what I make. And if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't, whatever. But honestly, like I do sit here sometimes over a couple of beers and say like, oh man, I really wish more people loved it, you know? And it's, 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 um, it, it's part of the, it's part of 
being an artist and part of being a creator and part of committing to um, say like, look, I want to be, I want to be part of a group of people that are willing to push the limits of things. And at the same time, it means you have to accept the fact that you're going to get, you're going to get that wave of people that want to spend their time being destructive versus coming up with an alternative or, or creating their own thing. Or, it's, it's, you know. it's good though. I mean, I totally understand because I always use the example of Moser and Moser was a very nice company that made very stolid and sober German Swiss watches. And they didn't become popular until they started pissing people off. And right. I got this hat from them at like <laughs> 2017. It says make Swiss great again, guys, make Swiss great again. And I used to have this hat on my set and I had to balance it out with my blue JLC hat. Neither <laughs> of these hats has anything to do with politics, but I had to have like, like my Democrats and my Republicans. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Because the stuff yeah. is visible on the internet. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> on the internet, they can be brutal. Um, so let me ask you a question then about how you reach collectors, because I wanted to talk to you about watchmaking during COVID. You launched the Devon into the teeth of a recession back in 2009, 2010. Then you did it again with the COVID pandemic in 2020. timing is perfect, dude. Listen, stick with me. If you want to launch something during the next crazy, like world falling apart situation, I'll probably be trying to launch something new during that time. So just hang out and you'll see how it happens. Like, yeah, no, it, it you, part of the thing is, is that, you know, um, I built, I've built up so, like I've said, like the relationships are so important to me. Um, you know, the, the industry is something I respect so much. And, and it's so funny because everybody's like, well, why are you fighting it so much? And I'm like, because I fight the industry so much because I love it so much because I want to see amazing things happen for the entire industry. And so because of that, you know, I, I'm, I talk to customers, collectors, people that, you know, there's a lot of people that I've become really close close with that never bought a dev a tread one because they thought it was the her most horrendous thing they'd ever seen and I became friends with them by talking about that and so I've created you know I've created a network of a lot of really really cool collectors around the world um, that are very supportive of what I do and there are a lot of them that will buy my watches simply because they're supportive of the idea of pushing limits and they're like I'll never wear this but I love this idea and I love the vibe and I love the whole thing. And they just want to be supportive of me, which, you know, I'm so grateful for, because if it wasn't for a lot of the global collectors and people around the world that um, I was able to, you know, ping out in the beginning of this whole thing, in the beginning of the pandemic and say, hey, I'm trying to launch this thing, like anybody's support would be great. You know, I had a lot of people that there were several people around the world that said, like, well, send me four, you know, send me, you know, I there were some people that said, you know, send me two of them, send me four of them, you know, a lot of people that were very, very supportive in the very beginning. But also, I have to say, and I wasn't really, really keen on this in the beginning, but like doing advertising online, Facebook, Instagram, those kinds of things, I was really, really able to, um, you know, say, you know, uh, introduce my brand and, and it, it, ga it gathered a lot of steam pretty quickly. You know, I want to say that 85% of my sales are, are online sales. And, uh, and, and I want to say, and, and most of those sales where most of those sales, the brand was introduced to people through Instagram or Facebook or something like that. And, you know, I really, I, I expected to have a lot more, um, I expected to have a lot more, um, uh, you know, more, more courting process where there would be a lot more people asking kind of questions, where's this coming from? And there were people asking that, you know, like, well, it's not, I'm, I'm being introduced to this thing online. How can I trust it or whatever? 
but there were great their customers going onto the ads and saying, hey, I bought this thing. It's actually really amazing. Here's a photo of it on my wrist. Like I love it. And it became a kind of cool thing to have the social media aspect be a real kind of driver of the sales because, because there were some fans and supporters and, and previous customers that had purchased the watch that were actually going on on my behalf and saying like, you know, people would go online and say that that's a crazy looking watch, like probably can't make it in real life. It's probably not real or something. And people would say, no, it's real. Like here it is right here. Like I, I bought it and it's actually great. And the, co the company's cool and trustworthy and all these things. So, you know, it, 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 I could have been, it could have been 2020 could have been worse for, for, for us. Um, I don't know if I answered your question entirely. It's, it's great. You absolutely did. I mean, basically you've got a solution to what ailed all the major brands. They were used to Baselworld, they were used to SIHH, they go physical pieces, meet the journalists, and then the journalists show it to the people. You went right to the people on social media. Right, well, and I think another thing is, is that what it, what starting when I started, and also the same, you know, starting now and starting when we did the Devon Watch, it really, really is, it's almost like we started them 100 years apart because, the Devon watch was launched in a time when the internet and social media and all that really wasn't a driving factor in this industry, whereas now it is. And so at that time, you really had to use traditional channels. You really didn't have another choice. You had to use traditional distribution, traditional retail channels. Um, you had to do traditional marketing, which cost a lot of money and things like that. Whereas now um, I was able to introduce my brand directly to customers. And, and, and I have to say, I think that's very, very, it's something that I've, that I've learned through this process. And, and, I, and I talk to people that are trying to start new things all the time and that are trying to do a challenging thing or challenge an industry. And what I find is that if you, if you can reach out to the customer directly, and this isn't to say that retailers and distributors don't have a vision and can't see the future, but they have to, retailers and distributors take on big risk when they're taking on a new brand. And if they're the, if they feel like they have to shoulder the weight to communicate the ideals and everything else of that brand before the brand is quote successful, then that's really taking on those risks is not, not really the traditional business of a retailer or distributor in this industry, right? So I say customer backup is gold, right? It's something. So what I was able to do by launching this online was I was able to connect directly to the people who do love it. That meant that they were asking their retailers. They were asking their retailers, "Hey, do you have this? Can I can I get it through you? Can I see it there?" And and that started to really drive things for us because then we had the retailers and distributors and stuff starting to say to us, "Hey, uh, people are asking us for your product. People are asking us for this." Versus me going to a retailer or distributor and saying, "Hey, I need you to have faith in me." Um, so, so, which is what you have to do, what we had to do with when launching the Devon was we had to say, look, I know this is polarizing and we know this is new and we know it's not Swiss and we know all these things, but we need you to have faith. And um, that's, that's, that's asking, that's asking a lot, especially during a downturn, especially during, you know, economic hard times, like you're, you can't expect to have a business that's traditionally based on being kind of a, a, a middleman essentially to then become an investor. And so, you know, the, 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 the thing about launching this past year was that everybody was online. Everybody was doing a Zoom call like you and I. Um, it, 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 it probably actually shaved off about 10 years of learning process for a lot of people in the world in terms of being comfortable doing 
video conferences and being more comfortable with purchasing things online and trusting that process. So I think like that the pandemic actually accelerated people's ability to be more comfortable purchasing things online, high ticket items, things from brands they'd never seen before. Um, and so I think that actually that ended up actually helping quite a bit was the fact that I was able to number one, connect directly with customers and communicate with customers directly, right? They'd ask a question on a Facebook ad. I'm the one that's answering the question. It's not, you know, it's not like somebody 10, 10 rungs down the line that might have like a book they're reading some answers out of. Like I was actually like, hey, I'll answer your questions. And I was talking to people on the phone, customers directly and all that. So it's, you know, it, it, there were challenges, but there were also, I think, a lot of benefits that came out of last year. So now looking forward towards the future, uh, people who might not be familiar with the brand need to know that you're making 250 pieces of the launch edition. And it's more of a statement of intent than the destination. The journey continues and you're looking forward to complications down the road. I've seen some renderings that are spectacular, but could you tell me a little bit about where you'd like to see the brand go product-wise in the next five years? Yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of two tiers. Um, one tier is the kind of what I call the daily drivers, right? So this is like the launch edition, the watch that just we just launched, and that we're doing 250 of 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 each variation. Um, I wanted them to be limited. I wanted it to be kind of like you said, the beginning of a story, and so people can feel like they they buy this watch, and then you know it's going to be the beginning of the story, and so it's the foundation of it. Um, but we're going to have two tiers, so. The, the launch edition watches and things like that that where we use maybe more off the shelf movements or we use movements that we maybe make small adjustments to, um, those are gonna be a certain tier that are the daily driver watches and those will be in, within a certain price point, kind of probably similar to where they are now. Um, and the idea with that is that, I'm, again, I'm taking, I'm taking kind of, uh, I'm taking cues from the, the auto industry, right? Where I always wanna have a halo product it might not be something that everybody can afford, or it might not be um, something that everybody loves, but it draws it draws people to the brand and it really represents the essence of what we're trying to do. And that is to create, always create, constantly evolve, constantly make new things and constantly come out with new ideas. So there's two tiers, right? There's gonna be what I like to call like the ultra lux, which is just, it's the crazy ideas and we're pushing limits, it's gonna be, all about coming up with new ways to um, display time. I've got a, a watch that right now it's codenamed the cryptic watch. I think that might be one of the watches you're talking about where it's an it's overlapping symbols that that it's basically like cryptic symbols that when they overlap in the middle of the watch like a jump hour that you see the hours from zero to 12 and it's a crazy skeletonized thing. And it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a module based, it'll be, a, um, you know, they'll, we'll probably use a Swiss based movement, but heavily, heavily modified with module and all kinds of crazy things. And um, that watch will probably be, you know, more in the range of 25 to $30,000. And we'll probably keep those very, very limited. But the idea will always be to have daily drivers and then the Halo product the halo watches where we're really experimenting. So that there's always that kind of skunk works thing happening and that people can, people can get their hands on them. So the idea will be to kind of have like two different tiers where there's a high, high, like really kind of experimental level of watches um, that we're doing as much as we possibly can. And then the daily drivers, which really are kind of just take that character and essence and, and creative, um, the creative 
um, character and, and put it into a daily driver watch that we know can be, it's a lifetime warranty. You can drop it on the floor. You can get in the shower with it. You can wear it every day. And it still kind of has the same spirit and essence yet. It's, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit more attainable and, and, um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, daily driver. Did I hear you say lifetime warranty? <laughs> Is that yeah. in the cards? Yeah. Wow. Impressive. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, the, 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 for, for me, it's, it's, there's these things, you know, a lot of times people will say to me like, um, oh, you've got, you've got a Japanese movement in a, in a watch that's almost $3,000. Like, I don't understand. Like it blows people's mind because they, you know, they're $50, they see it in $50 watches and things. I'm like, yeah, but you're, what people don't understand sometimes is that they're not just buying the product, but they're buying into like a family of our business. They're becoming, we're building a relationship. Like every single one of every single one of my watches, I buy two movements for. So, 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 so that, so that I can guarantee. So it's a limited lifetime warranty for the launch edition watches. Obviously, like if somebody decides to try throwing it in a blender or, not you know, or jump out of a helicopter with it on into some salt water who knows but but the, the but really the idea here is to is to like is to show people my faith in the product but also my faith in them as fans and build these relationships so yeah so the, the lifetime warranty thing is is for me kind of like just to say to people like that's how much i believe in the relationship that's going to occur and um but that's partially why I end up using some of these like really, really bulletproof movements in the in the daily driver watches and things because I want to make sure it's something that somebody's not worried about or thinking about. You know, it's more just having fun with artwork and experiencing it. Definitely. So if people want to find the artist himself and they want to find Wilbur watches, you're all online right now. Where can people find pictures and information? Um, well, uh, you can go to wilburco.com. Um, W-I-L-B-U-R-C-O.com or WilburWatches.com gets you to the same spot. Also on Instagram, I'm Jason Wilbur official. Um, and, you know, there's, it's fun because part of this, uh, part of this um, it, it, trying to relate to people's kind of cust customer lifestyles and, and, um, and other aspects of people's life where it's not just about like watches, but it's about the, like you and I, like cars, you know, pretending we're building rocket ships for ourselves, things like that. You know, I always tell people like my brand's about rocket ships and time travel. You know, it's 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 dreams of machines. It's it's this crazy concept of being able to kind of strap yourself to a rocket and kind of like do crazy superhero things. And so one one thing that's come out of this is that um, I do have it in 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 a couple of different retail locations, um, but it's not watch stores. I mean, not right now. Um, so. One of them is O'Gara Coach in San Diego. O'Gara is one of the biggest, um, you know, they're one of the biggest uh, supercar dealers on earth. They sell Bugatti, they sell Rolls Royce, they sell, uh, you know, um, Lamborghini. And uh, those guys, you know, this is the first like actual product that they sell in an exotic car dealer. And people are like, that's an exotic car dealer, not a, not a watch store. And I'm like, exactly. Because the funny part is that that came about because several customers locally bought my watches, went into the store, and then the people in the store were asking about the watches. And then it was like, well, this is all kind of like, this is all kind of in the same space. This is all in the same kind of lifestyle. And so, you know, so I've got it in there. And then I've got, you know, I've got um, some watches in a local gallery here um, where I actually have 
sketches and renderings and drawings of the process that went into building the watch on the wall. And um, people are actually buying prints of the sketches of the watches. Um, so it's, it's kind of fun because it just kind of, it's really giving people like a little bit more of like a immersion into the, the experience. Very cool. So you're, you're one part Max Booster, one part Tony Stark, uh, one part Raymond Lowy. It's a good I like it. I'll yeah, that sounds good. I, I, <laughs> I could, I'll have to send you some screenshots of what people think I really am on Facebook, but <laughs> I, I like your interpretation better. Use it with my blessing. No. Uh, th thank you so much, Jason. I've really enjoyed this. This has been an absolute pleasure. Tim, wonderful, man. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it.